Welcome to Ear Crush, the Friday podcast for people who love listening to great stories. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and my co-host this week is Catherine McEwen, the narrator of the Brain Trust series and our current story, Bits Run Free. Catherine, thanks for being here and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be on Ear Crush with you. And you are in Los Angeles. You've been recording today, and I hear L.A. sirens in the background. Yes, I am in Los Angeles. I'm actually... uh... Yeah, here enjoying the sunshine and um, looking forward to getting stuck into book three of the series. So, yeah. So you, here recorded, I am. you recorded book one ooh, about a year ago? It was right? a year ago. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think it was October. It was actually right before Halloween, October 2017. And I was okay. in New York and I recorded it over there. And then, yeah, I just finished book two, which was fantastic. And now I'm getting stuck into book three. And in between that, we did our short story, which all of the listeners are going to be hearing. And how, how much easier is it to go? Because we've done book two and book three pretty close together. Is that easier for you as a narrator to do them when they're close together? Or does it, it make is. a difference? Well, no, it is. It's, um, you get very lost in the world, particularly Mark's world, because it's so um, imaginative and specific and other world. It's, it, it kind of, it, for me, it's like world of tomorrow sci-fi where it's the world that we know, um, but with all of these, you know, really interesting technological advances and great characters, a lot of humor. I find his work very humorous. Um, so, yeah, when you're in that world and you're living with the characters and then you get to do the next book right away, uh, afterwards, it de- I, I really enjoy it. I feel like I've, I've, my relationship with the characters really deepens. And you, when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned one of the things you liked about this series is the female protagonists and that there are multiple female protagonists, essentially. Yeah, we have our three main heroines, Ping, Jam, and Dash. They're all very different. And what I love about them well, one of the things I love about them most is that they work together really well and they're all really close friends and there isn't any competitiveness. They're all extremely different. They all have extremely different skill sets and they bring different stuff to the table, but they all work together in a really uh, great way um, to bring down the baddies <laughs> and you know to move the world forward in a positive way. And I really like that because often you know, women in, in the books or films can often be portrayed as enemies and being competitive and, you know, going up against each other. And these three are just like besties. They even describe each other as besties. And um, they're always helping each other get out of the most unbelievable situations. And uh, yeah, I really love that. It's really heartening and it's really exciting, especially because they all, like I said, have very different skill sets, you know, brains and brawn and ping who's just brilliant she's uh she's a badass <laughs> i kind of <laughs> they really are three she's completely great. different characters they are and yet they all kind of come together and use their different skill sets to form a really powerful team uh I, so that's been great i was telling mark that i read the first book and then listened to your version of the first book and then when the second book came out, I just made a decision that I wanted to listen from the start. And so I have mm. not read the second book or the third book yet. I am, as soon as we release, and probably by the time this comes out, we will have released 
book two, and, uh, the audio book will have come out. And so then I can finally awesome. start listening to it because I could have just downloaded the audio files, but because I'm old, I find it difficult <laughs> to do that. And I'd rather just use Audible to do it on my phone. And it's just really easy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that. And then the third book, I'm super excited about listening to all of them. Yeah. What? And you're an audio guy. I mean, you I like to, li- this yeah. is, yeah. So your preferred medium for you know, having stories delivered to you is listening. And I think that's really valid. I think that's what's so exciting about audiobooks is some people are just, that's how they like to receive their information. And so now we can give it to them. You know, the funny thing is for me, I, if I like reading a series and I've never heard the audiobook, I will keep reading. If I've heard uh, an audiobook and I love it, then I don't want to read the books anymore. I want to listen to the books. And so it's just I have these books that I read and I have these other books that I listen to. Interesting. And the brain trust in... now falls into the listen to category. <laughs> yeah, I I hope you're enjoying it. I think it's a great world. I think it's super imaginative and it's also like really interesting how so much of it is predicted. Like or at least I I I feel like it is. Like Mark has this unbelievable way of kind of predicting the future, you know, and, and coming up with this technology that you can just see unfolding. Yes. You know, as, as we, and it's not like it's 150 years in in the future. It's not that far in the future and it feels like it's like we're on that path in a lot of cases. Right. And there's a lot of like, I feel like winks and like nods of the head and like the tip of the hat to like certain people in our world now that we're experiencing this uh, extremely interesting journey with at the moment. And I, you know, that he's created <laughs> characters that are definitely representative <laughs> of some public figures that we all know and, and some of us love and some of us don't. So but we all yeah, know, that's, we all yeah, know that we all know. Um, so that's really, and I think that that's what I've, I've always loved about sci-fi is even though, you know, in Mark's case, it's world of tomorrow or, you know, for Star Trek, it's out into the galaxies. I feel like I feel like sci-fi has always been a great platform to talk about events happening now. So even though it's set in the future, near or close future, it is a way that we can talk about things and issues that are happening now in a way that, you know, is still removed enough that we can explore it without, you know being too much for people or feeling like it's a direct criticism of stuff. And we see a lot of that in sci-fi movies as well. And for for listeners out there, we're going to get to the story, and we're going to get to the story now, and then we're going to continue this interview at the end of the story. So the story's coming up, part two of Bits Run Free, narrated by Catherine McEwen, starts now. Tracking down the kid had not been hard. For a ship with 10,000 people, there were few children. Most of the inhabitants were young people who were not even married yet, much less having families. A quick check on the handful of mini-schools quickly found Charlie. So Earl placed a very large rolling suitcase in the corner of the ice cream shop on the promenade and went to make contact. When the boy left the school, Earl fell into step next to him. Charlie Winston. Charlie stopped and looked at him. Yeah? He asked suspiciously. Hi, I'm Earl Anderson. He shook Charlie's hand. 
You're the one who fished the golden folder from the California backup DB. Am I right? Charlie winced. Yeah. Great. Earl pulled out his California chief investigator badge. I just need to ask you a few questions. Could I buy you an ice cream while we talk? Chocolate? Charlie's eyes widened. I guess so. Earl led Charlie into the ice cream shop, plied him with ice cream while he asked how many people he'd shown the file to, and became increasingly convinced the boy was lying to him. This was what he had feared, and why he had decided not to include local law enforcement in the interview. He had to have a clear field to do whatever needed to be done to find the truth. Good thing he had a backup plan. When the lone storekeeper went into the back room for a moment, leaving only a bot in attendance, Earl shifted position to block the view of the shop vidcam, pulled out a tube filled with sand, and thwacked Charlie on the head with it. While Charlie was dazed, he quickly stuffed the boy into the large rolling suitcase and departed at a brisk pace for the Varen House. The Varen House was interesting because there were few people and lots of places with no vidcams. Since it was a logistics ship, it was full of shipping containers, and the interior of every container was truly private. He selected a likely container, picked the lock, tossed the bag and the boy inside, and pulled the door closed behind him. He popped the boy out and was about to start asking questions in this more ominous environment. He was sure Charlie would start telling the truth now, which was good, because Earl knew he was on a short clock. The peacekeepers would be on him at any moment. He needed to get the answers, release the boy, and hightail it to the rented speedboat docked on Gplex 1 before anyone stopped him. But then, something metal clanged against the door of his chosen container. He rushed to clamp his hand over Charlie's mouth. The clang stopped. Good. The bar that secured the door he'd opened now slid closed. Bad. They were trapped in the container. The whine of immense motors accompanied the shifting of the floor under Earl's feet. What the hell is going on? Charlie finally pried away Earl's hand. We're moving. He scrunched his face as he thought the situation through. This container probably came from San Diego, so it's heading to Portland or Hawaii. Earl remembered vaguely that there was a three-way cargo route utilizing the brain trust as a Liberian-flagged stopover. Something about the Jones Act. Whatever. Then he realized that if they were going to Portland, things would work out well indeed. A day or two in the container, then they'd be released in a state that was very friendly with California and would give him the respect he deserved. Then he realized that if they were going to Hawaii, they'd be in the container way too long. Do you know which one we're going to? Charlie scrunched his face. Hawaii. Hawaii! No! I'll starve to death in here! Earl started beating on the door. Charlie shook his head. We won't starve. Earl paused, looking hopeful. We'll die of thirst long before that happens. 
Earl wailed and started pounding again. Ping was sitting in Dasha's office, her chair tilted back and her feet up on the little table that held Dasha's jade Ganesha statue. She and Dash were chatting when her earpiece buzzed and alert. She jumped to her feet. Dash watched her in concern. What's wrong? Ping swore. A boy just got kidnapped. Actually, he was kidnapped a while ago, but they only just realized it. Ping listened to the detailed sitrep. We're having trouble figuring out what happened from the vidcams. Dash pursed her lips. I might be able to help. She picked up the fighter helmet sitting on her desk. Ping had considered asking what that was about, but Dash always had something oddball to fiddle with. She held it out for Ping to put on as she explained. You remember the guys from the Goldman Sachs gun club? Those crazy rifles of theirs? Ping nodded. Yeah, really cool rifles. We bought a couple from them, for the peacekeepers. Well, this was designed to work with the rifles. I'm investigating other applications. Dash took a breath, then continued. This is an old F-35 fighter helmet, designed to allow the wearer to see in all directions, as if the pilot were in a glass bubble. The guys hooked it up to the ship's vidcams, so you can zoom in 3D anywhere you want to go, see any direction from any location, and zoom from place to place at the speed of light. Ping popped the helmet on and looked around. Can't see my feet. I'm looking at the deck below us. Cool. She scowled, then realized Dash couldn't see her expression under the helmet. But I need to see what was happening a couple of hours ago, not what's happening now. Dash laughed delightedly. No problem. You can fly through time, as well as space. She explained how to use the controls. Ping zoomed back in time, onto the Gplex 2, and into the ice cream shop. It took her a moment, given the limited camera view, to figure out that the boy was in the suitcase the guy had trundled away with. Then she was in high-speed follow mode, moving time forward at ever higher speeds as she became comfortable with the controls. Ow! she exclaimed as she ran into a container. Is the helmet supposed to hurt you? Dash sounded sympathetic. Sorry, the haptic feedback needs adjusting. You probably ran into a place where there are no cameras. Right. Ping stood outside the container and watched as a bot dogged the door shut, then maneuvered the cranes to take the container off to a waiting ship. Damn it! I can't believe it! They left the archipelago! She swept the helmet off her head. Can I borrow this for a while? Dash smiled and nodded. Please do bring it back when you are done. There's only one. F-35 helmets are very hard to come by if you aren't an American ally who's buying F-35 fighters. While informing the rest of the peacekeepers what she'd discovered, Ping tapped her copter lift app as she ran up the ramps to the top deck of the Chiron. Her hopes of catching a ride on one of the fastest and hottest homebrew copters maybe a winner in one of the periodic aerial laser tag contests, came to naught. The only copter listed as available for hire was an odd-looking duck of a vehicle 
owned and operated by a kid named Ted Simpson. Looking at the specs, she concluded it had enough range and speed for the mission, even if it wasn't the sleekest bird on the archipelago. Unsurprisingly, there was no way of telling the app that her destination was a freighter already outbound to Hawaii. So when the copter landed, she rushed onto the pad, jumped into the passenger seat, and explained in machine gun phrases, Ted Simpson, nice to meet you. I'm Ping with the Peacekeepers. There is a 12-year-old child who's been kidnapped. He's trapped on a container ship heading to Hawaii. Do you have a full load of fuel? This explanation failed to penetrate fully, and Ted's eyes widened. So you don't want to go out to the beach on the Southwest Reef? Ping blew out a breath. This kid was ridiculously young. Honestly, Ted didn't even look like he was old enough to drive a car in Chicago. What was he doing piloting a copter? What had she gotten herself into? Ted, focus. How much gas have you got? Ted gulped. My tank's topped off. Ping flung her hands in the air, pointing upward. Then let's go. I'll explain on the way. Okay. The odd copter hopped into the air with surprising nimbleness. Adrenaline surged in Ping's blood, and she couldn't help shouting, West! Full speed ahead! Yes, ma'am. He gunned the engines, and they shot under the dirigible filling with hydrogen to be delivered to San Francisco, over the isle ship Chiron and the colorful Elysian fields, and across the immense artificial reef that circled the entire anchored fleet. Ping watched it all zoom by and offered a tribute. Not bad, Ted. I didn't think your copter would be a fast ride, but not bad. Ted huffed. It's my first copter design. I could do better if I had the money. Ping suspected that all the homebrew copter developers would say the same thing. Then Ted made the connection and asked the inevitable question. Ping? His eyes widened. Are you the Ping from Assault Night? Ping put her hand to her temples. Yeah, that's me. Ted showed her a big grin. Cool. So we're after a bunch of kidnappers this time. Well, one kidnapper and the boy he took. Ted was underwhelmed. Only one kidnapper? Hardly seems enough for the brain trust to send somebody like you. Ping just shook her head and pointed at the horizon. Is that the freighter out there? Ted peered at the barely visible lump. I think so. Then drive, Ted. Just drive. And hurry. Charlie was miserable in the cargo container, but not for the reasons he'd expected. His kidnapper was, on closer inspection, not half as scary as he'd seemed at first. Sure, he was big and strong enough, but he didn't really have his head together. After Charlie had explained he was going to die of dehydration, he'd pounded on the container doors until his hands bled. Charlie then explained this would cause him to die sooner, so he finally stopped. Then Mr. Anderson had started trying to call someone on his cell phone. Charlie explained why, when trapped in a solid steel container in the middle of the ocean, that wouldn't work either. Mr. Anderson curled up on the opposite side of the container from Charlie, 
and started to weep. Charlie chose not to mention that this too was a waste of water he would soon wish he'd retained. Charlie, on the other hand, wasn't too worried. He figured somebody from the brain trust would figure out what had happened and find them. After giving the matter some thought, he'd started his own effort to help whoever came looking. The container held an odd assemblage of things, including an antique car of some kind. He'd seen it when the guy let him out of the suitcase. Charlie crawled under the car, found the spare tire, and inched his hands around till he felt a lug wrench. Once he'd worked the wrench out of its hidey hole, he started hammering out an SOS on the door once every half hour. Three quick raps, three long raps, and three quick raps. It wasn't much, but it was sustainable. Ted eyed the container ship as they approached and asked Ping the obvious question. Where do you want me to land? Sky-high stacks of containers towered from every square inch of deck space. Ping felt a sinking sense of despair when she looked at the enormous piles of steel boxes. How could she possibly find the right one? She pointed in front of the tall command bridge. Can you put her down on top of the containers? Ted answered as if affronted. Miss Ping, I can put her down anywhere. Great. Ping picked up her phone and dialed. Miraculously, the phone worked. Dash, can you hook up this wonderful helmet to the vidcams on a container ship? Maybe? Okay, I'll talk to the captain. Minutes later, they tracked down the captain, who was in turn looking for the interlopers who'd landed a copter on his containers. It turned out he was the only person on board. He explained, I have a small swarm of general-purpose bots to do the work. Ping did a double take. But GP bots are illegal in Hawaii, just like the rest of the states, right? Aren't they going to arrest you? The captain just laughed. When I get close to port, I order the bots to reconfigure themselves. By the time the longshore men come aboard, they're only special-purpose bots to help with the offloading and unloading. Ted piped up. Cool. Mr. Toscano always says, never let the bureaucrats get in the way of getting your work done. I like it. It took some time, with Dash on the phone, and the captain and Ted crawling on their knees working the wiring for the vidcams to hook up the helmet. But finally it was done. The captain grunted. Don't expect this to work like it would on the brain trust. We just don't have that many cameras. Ping was already zooming through time and space in the helmet. Her despair deepened. We're going to have to turn the ship around and get all the peacekeepers to form a search party. The captain winced. If we have to, I guess we have to, but it'll throw my whole schedule off. He looked away. I'm working on a shoestring here. It may bankrupt me. Ping swallowed a scream. Think, damn it. Everything she'd heard about this Charlie kid suggested he was pretty bright, probably a lot brighter than the kidnapper. What would he do? He couldn't get out of the container. He couldn't light a smoke signal. Captain, do you have microphone pickups around the ship? Then she yelled into the phone. Hey, Dash, can you hook audio into this thing as well? 
For a long moment, Ping held her breath. Finally, the captain and Dash answered at almost the same time. We can do that. Dash's voice came calmly through the ether to the frenetic Ping. When this starts up, it should give you a better signal than any of the individual microphones can achieve, because I'm feeding them through a convolutional neural network, essentially fusing all the pickups. Ping practically bounced in place. Great, cool, whatever, fire it up. As you wish. Ping swiveled her head, letting the helmet see and hear from many different directions. She jumped as a loud rapping sound nearly burst her eardrums. Ow! Turn it down! Even before anyone could follow her order, she was off and running. Something latched onto the container with a loud clank, and Earl leapt to his feet, shouting, We're here! We're here! The container started shaking. Wait! Don't crush us! Stop! Charlie shook his head in disgust and tapped the side of the container with his lug wrench in case the rescuers still needed help zeroing in on them. Soon they heard the bar holding the container door in place slide away, and sunlight poured into the opening. Earl rushed out to grab the first person he saw. Ping surveyed the container with satisfaction. This is it. Ted grabbed the bar across the doors and slid it aside. The captain offered a warning. Open it slowly. They've been in the dark this entire time. The sun is going to be murder on their eyes. Ted pulled the door open, and a tall man hurtled straight at Ping. Ping was ready. Three swift jabs knocked all the air out of him. It should have knocked all the fight out of him too, but his momentum carried him into her. He wrapped himself around her in a bear hug. Lifted off the ground, feet dangling, arms trapped at her sides, it took a moment for Ping to remember that she now had him where she wanted him. After all, he couldn't hit her or kick her. She arched her spine and flipped her head back in preparation to headbutt him in the face and crush his nose. Then she realized she was wet. He was dripping tears on her. Finally, she heard what he was screaming in her ear. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. Ping relaxed in his arms. She spoke calmly. There, there, you're welcome. Now put me down so I can handcuff you. Gently now, that's it. She looked to the side where she saw both Ted and Charlie staring at her, disappointment on Ted's face and puzzlement on Charlie's. She shrugged and mouthed the word, What? All right, Catherine, thank okay. you. That was fantastic. I, I'm really enjoying listening to this version of the story, to the, to the short story uh, from you. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the narration process mm. and the way that you work with authors. I, I find in reading some of these books, especially the first Brain Trust book, there's so many words that I couldn't even begin to pronounce. How do you mm. get all of that organized and ensure that you have the pronunciations right on words that I know in sci-fi sometimes are just made up words too? Right. And that's where this has been a real blessing to be able to be connected with the author because oftentimes you're not. 
Um, and so there's some great, um, you know, stuff online, like Forvo's great for being able to look words up. And, you know, you, there, there are places to definitely find pronunciations that you're not familiar with. But like you said, with words that are made up or, you know, weapons, there's a lot of weapons in Mark's stuff that I uh-huh. have no idea. I'm sure if, I'm sure some weapons experts would know what these things are. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of words that I didn't know. So being able to reach out to Mark and um, have him, he would send me the recordings so I could just listen. And that was very generous of him. I was really glad that he was able to do that and open to doing that because I think that makes a real difference. You're always trying to, as a narrator, um, you know, fulfill the, the, uh, the writer's vision. You want to get it right and you want to say it right. And so being able to speak with him and get his take on it has been really great. One of the things that I learned just a couple of days ago was that you were actually involved in the character creation for a, a couple of characters in the second book in the series after having narrated the first book. Can you walk us through that? Yes, that was amazing. I, there were these two characters that appeared in the first book, and I thought they were really fun. It's Captain Jack Ainsworth and Security Chief Hart Badley. And I gave them these really specific action, uh, accents. I gave Captain Jack Ainsworth this northeastern accent. Um, I'm from the northeast of England, and I grew up in a coastal town. I was laughing with Mark because I seem to have an obsession with, like, northern captains of ships. But um, <laughs> basically, I gave him this really specific accent and then also the security uh, chief. And I think for some reason, Mark really connected to these um voices that I'd given them. And so they got to come back in this really cool way <laughs> in book two. And uh-huh. then in book three, they're back again. And um, yeah, particularly Jack Ainsworth, he's got this entire character arc uh, where he's, I can't give anything away, but where he's uh, taken on a whole different role, very much outside of his role as just being a captain. He's now involved um, with the scientists and experiments. And that's all I'll say, because I don't want to don't want to give anything away. But that was really fun to see them brought back. I think that's the power of um, of audiobooks, giving people specific voices and kind of triggering the imagination. You know, in this case, the author, which is amazing. Had, had you experienced anything like that before in any of your other narration projects where there was an active never. collaboration that was going on? No, never. It was amazing. And... Um, there was also some really interesting discussions about British accents and, you know, regional accents in Britain are so specific and so they're so much more than just the way that we speak because it's also about where we're from and how we can be categorized where we're from by how we speak. And so that was really interesting and actually really rewarding to be able to share that with Mark and talk to him about it and and then have that whole notion of at some point having to put on a different accent to pass yourself off as somebody else mm-hmm. and be able to share that and then see that appear in book two. So that was really cool. I really enjoyed that collaboration. That was that was a gift. Now, Michael Anderley and I had the opportunity to meet you in New York. We yes. Had a, we had a little dinner engagement for some a LNBPN. Soiree. A soiree. I like that. <laughs> it was a, and it was glorious. It was the highlight of my trip well, to New York. And the highlight of that evening for me was this period of about an hour where Michael and I and my wife and everyone who wasn't a narrator from Great Britain was just sitting there watching 
um, three British narrators talk about accents and the way the yes. an accent can affect your life. And, and you told yep. the story. I, I don't want to get into it now, but it was just hysterical. And I walked out of there that night with talking to my wife, like, I wish we had recorded this because it was gold. Yeah, that's, it is a whole thing. There was a, that brilliant narrator who's from Newcastle and which is where it's very close to where I'm from. But, you know, I think what we've been talking about was, you know, either sounding like you're from there or it, I remember the conversation and it was nuanced and, and very profound. And I remember that I think what it is, is that what you saw were these three Brits taken out of the context of their hometown. And then we were all sitting at this dinner and then, you know, we got into it because of course, narration is all about your voice and how you speak and, you know, what, what voice you narrate in. So that was, that was great. That was a great night. That was it really was, good food it was, too. It was really fun. And we're doing it again this year. If you're going to be there, you're, if you're going to I be will be. Good. And they've moved the Audis to March this time, right? Yes. So they separated it. Yes. Mm. Um, so we'll be, we'll be excited to be there. It'll be great to see you again. Great. Um, now you, in addition to the narration work you do, you're also an actress and a, and a filmmaker and, probably some other things as well. How do you, how do you juggle all of this and, and how do they all, do they all work together in some way? They do. I mean, I'm very blessed that I, I'm an actress um, first and foremost. That's how I, you know, what I trained in and it's my passion. Um, and then I became a producer and I started to write my own material and produce my own material because I wasn't, I wasn't satisfied with, um, you know, waiting for the phone to ring, waiting to be cast in something. Mm -hmm. But also, I have a really specific taste. I like certain kinds of films. Um, I wasn't always entirely happy with the way uh, female characters was kind of two-dimensional when I first got here to L.A. Things are really changing and progressing for the better. So I really wanted to make my own stuff. So I kind of learned to produce for that reason, um, and I still do that. And then the voiceover narration, one of my friends got me into that. And it's just been a gift because uh, to be able to learn how to use your voice as a, as, a, as a means of communication and fulfilling a writer's vision has been really rewarding. And, you know, it's just another form of, uh, of telling stories that I, that I really enjoy, uh, you know, and, and they all support each other. You learn about writing. I'm, you know, I write screenplays. You learn about writing through reading other authors' work. You learn, you know, how to use your voice as a voice actor, and you can bring that to your on-camera work. So it's all kind of, you know, symbiotic, really. Is there what? What is your what's your favorite thing to do professionally? Um, I mean, I love film. I love film because of the the sheer volume of people that it can that it can reach. Would but you my rather, first would love, you rather produce or act? Oh, act without question. Okay. I mean, acting is my passion. Producing is something that I've learned to love and appreciate, but I do it as a means to facilitate my acting for sure. And I did start in the theatre, and there is something to be said. I, I think my first love will always be the stage, and my favourite moment is, you know, you, you work at night generally in the theatre, and, and there's just this moment where, you know, the sun's gone down, you've got ready, the audience are all talking, they've all sat down, they're talking, and then the play's about to begin, and there's just this moment where the audience can feel it, and they settle down, and there's this silence, this moment of silence, 
and then the curtain comes up or you step onto stage and the other world begins. And that moment to me is just my absolute favorite. You know, it's that pause between two worlds. How much of that is riddled with nerves? The nerves for me um, come right before that. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I do get really, you know, everyone gets stage fright. I remember reading Al Pacino that he, he said that he vomits before he goes on stage every single time. I think it's natural that we, you know, get stage fright in, in, in any kind of live experience where you've got people that you don't want to let down. But for me, once it begins, that's when, you know, the magic takes over and you hope that your work carries you through and the other actors carry you through and truly your service to the piece and the audience carries you through. But yeah, there's always those moments where you go up on a line and you just look at the other actor and the fear in their eyes and the fear in your eyes and you're Uh like, ah, and then it always works out. But it all goes away, like right before the curtain opens. For me, yeah, because the the joy of acting for me is, you know, they say self-consciousness is the enemy of the actor. And I think it's the enemy of all of us. And I think that, say, for example, me and you, we're just sitting here. We're not thinking about ourselves. We're looking at each other. We're Mm -hmm. engaging. We're listening. And once once that play begins or, you know, once your creative process begins, the attention is taken off yourself and placed where it belongs, which is out into the world. And it's that escape from yourself that I love. You know, and and you don't have time to be nervous and you can't get nervous or self-conscious when your attention is firmly placed on your scene partner or on the reality of the scene or for narrating audio books, the text on the page. And, you know, I always try to keep the vision of the author in my head when I'm narrating if I get stuck because you're, you're trying to... That author has bled on the page and has probably you know, he's probably, or he or she is probably like labored over every word and every comma. So when I get in my head, when I'm narrating or I'm struggling or I get self-conscious, you know, in the booth, it's quite lonely in the booth at times. That's when you try to reconnect with the author and think, okay, they, they poured over this manuscript, probably alone themselves, you know. And so even though it's not like a visceral physical connection you have with them, it's, you know, it's it's some kind of bond that you can lean on when you're in the weeds. How different is it? Because narration, to a certain extent, has to be a form of, of acting. Absolutely. And, but when you're acting, you are acting with and in collaboration with other people. You're re- responding to them. We're responding to one another now. But when you're in the booth with just pages in front of you, how hard is that? I, I think it's very challenging. I, f- I find it very challenging and um, it takes a great deal of concentration. Someone once said to me at uh, a Penguin Random House party, uh, a very experienced seasoned narrator, and he said, and it, I think it was after my first book, which I'd done a, a big epic kind of gargoyle, uh, te- like young adult fantasy. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, my God, I'd done a full unabridged Medea on stage at like 27 playing Medea. And it wasn't as difficult as my first audio book. <laughs> and he said he said that someone described narrating an audio book as pushing a rock up a hill with your face. And it's not because it's, you know, it's it's great fun and it's amazing. But it's that idea of like complete concentration, mm-hmm. playing all of the characters, you know, switching back and forth between accents and 
different characters' heads and, you know, you're in their heads and thoughts and environments. And like you say, you've, you've no help from any other cast members. There's no one else to lean on. It's just you in that booth. So that's when, yeah, it, I, I find it definitely challenging. I think it requires a great deal of concentration. And I think that as with all um, creative endeavors, you want it to be an invisible art, right? You don't want the listener to be thinking about what you're doing. You want them to be engaged in the story. So, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely challenging, but it's extremely rewarding. And it also means you get to read a ton of different things and uh, get taken into different worlds like Mark's done so imaginatively with his Brain Trust series. You know, that is a, that is a very imaginative world he's created. All right, and I, I think what we should do as, as a part of this is have a thing, and you may see this on social media somewhere, or you may, you may listen to this as a part of Ear Crush, but if you have not listened to the first episode of The Brain Trust yet, send me an email, steve at lmbpn.com. The, the email address will be in the show notes. And the first three people that email me, I will send uh, an audible code so you can get the first copy of the Brain Trust for free. And then I'll bill Catherine Yay. for it because I think that would be... <laughs> giveaway. Giveaway. Tuesday. So we'll do a giveaway. And book two will be, ready, will be out by the time this uh, episode goes live. And book three, you start narrating in a few uh, weeks. Right. It, yeah. Well, no, now. Oh, now? As soon as I hang oh, up. Oh, you're doing it now? <laughs> Okay, I was confused. All right, so now. And so it the book will be In out. about 10 minutes, but I, I, it will take me longer than 10 minutes to do. <laughs> to, get, to get back in character. So we will... What, this will be interesting for people. You finish. You send the audio files to mm. someone who does post-production. Post-production yes. person sends Can back I give him a shout out? Troy Odie, who has Troy. been on the yeah. show, who's been on the show. He's so great. He is, I love he is Troy. great. And I got with. to meet him at the dinner. Yes. Very he was, briefly. He was there as well. Yes. And uh, he just, he's one of those guys that just takes care of everything. He, he just, you don't have to worry about anything. Once it goes yeah. to Troy, he gives you the finished product and everything is done. And if the, ever there's a problem, he just fixes it immediately. He's just. He takes out all my mouth sounds and weird weird stammers <laughs> good now you, you may rest assured that that will not happen in this podcast so if, there may be weird stammers in here and, it, and you can blame <laughs> okay. me for that <laughs> that's okay we don't need it to be perfect no because not it, for a podcast it's it real is not it's real and candid this is real now we're getting ready to wrap up so for those of you who are listening, if you haven't listened to the Brain Trust series yet, give it a try. Um, I, I think you'll really like it. If you like book one, you're going to love books two and three. I just know yes. because I understand the scope of the series. And keep listening. We've, we've got one more episode of Bits Run Free. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's Let the Bits Run Free now. Okay, Went let through the a bits little run. bit of a... Mm -hmm. Let the Bits Run through. Free. And that will be next week. You've just heard the second part here. Mm. Let's, in closing, let us know where we I just we spilled tea on my face, by the way. Did then you? I was like, shit, this may end up on... Oh, and I just cursed. <laughs> I just went like this and tipped. My drinking problem is uh, surfacing again. <laughs> 
That's how real we got. I threw tea on my. On and my then started stuff. swearing. Anyway, sorry. About it. <laughs> Go on. What All right. Tell us where we can learn. Tell us where we can learn more about you and the various projects that you have. Um, you can go to my film company website, which is solitaryfilms.com. And there you can find out more about my projects. I'm on Instagram at Catherine Lee McEwen. And um, also you could go on my website, which is catherinemcewen.com. Okay. So either of those, either or all, or yeah, or one. All right. Thank You'll you, Catherine. you some idea. Now, in closing, yes. you've got a fantastic L.A. view. Off to I your do. left, oh my God. or maybe it's your right. Can you show us that in closing? Yes. Nice. Look at that view. That is nice. We we tried to do Catherine against that view, but the lighting yes. just didn't work out. And since she's well, a filmmaker, I love I love the lighting because you couldn't see anything, and it's <laughs> ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but no, I it's okay. We we had to do it this way. But yes, there's palm trees and. Wonderful smog and some buildings and sunshine. Wonderful smog. How about that? <laughs> All right, Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Time to get back to work. Yes, and thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait for the listeners to experience the very imaginative and funny and tense and amazing world of uh, Mark's brain trust. 